The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 22. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In this episode, I'll be performing three spine-chilling tales for you about mysterious music, headless horrors, and educational atrocities. All of tonight's tales come to us from the exceptionally talented Soren Narnia author of the Knife Point Horror Podcast. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from author Soren Narnia chronicles the story of a man plagued by another worldly woman with an unusual way of announcing her presence one that will ensure you never look at certain types of music the same way again. Without further ado, I present to you Bells. My name is Martin Rose. After not having much contact with him for the first 20 years of my life, I got to know my grandfather more and more. He and I had a very late dinner at his little house in the country one night, and afterwards we sat on his back porch as he smoked his pipe, just talking. I happened to ask him if he had any regrets in life, expecting him to talk about never having remarried or never opening his own clinic. He'd been a doctor all his life. 
Instead, he was quiet for a long moment, and then said that to that very day he held one very shameful secret inside, and he finally felt safe enough to reveal it. He used that word specifically, safe. He said he regretted never telling the police that he was almost certain of the identity of a killer. Needless to say, I begged him to tell me the story, and with a lot of hesitation, he did. It was the year 1951. My grandfather, whose name is John, was working at a rehabilitation center in Cumberland, Maryland. John woke up in bed one night in January to feel his heart pounding and a bizarre feeling of being very cold inside his skin, not on the surface. Alarmed, he got up and started pacing back and forth across his bedroom, trying to understand this feeling, like a panic attack, but with more unusual symptoms. Before it fully subsided, he happened to look out his window in the front yard and the winding road beyond it. There was someone standing out there at the curb. It was a little bit before two in the morning, and it had begun to snow very lightly. John put on his robe and his shoes and opened the front door. The woman out there didn't move. She was holding one arm up at her side in a strange way. John called out, but she didn't answer. As he moved closer to her, he heard a small sound and realized that the woman was wearing little finger bells and she was clanging them softly as she stood in the snow. She wore tattered shoes and ragged brown dress. She looked very young in her twenties and had a plain face and unstylish hair. John asked if he could help her, but she only looked at him and clanged her little bells. She wasn't shivering at all. She seemed to want to be where she was, but he told her to follow him inside so he could call someone to get her. She followed willingly enough as she spoke very soft words under her breath, not mumbling but whispering. My grandfather remembered that the bizarre symptoms he'd suffered just minutes earlier had disappeared quickly upon venturing out into the night. He asked this woman some questions, but she didn't answer any of them except one. When he asked her if she needed something to eat, she said, I swallowed a farmer's eye in Lancaster. And then she opened her mouth wide as if to show him. Her mouth was empty, and she closed it again and smiled strangely. She clanged her finger bells and followed John to the guest room. His plan, if he couldn't get any information out of her, was to just keep her safe and dry and call a friend at County Hospital to drive her over in an ambulance as soon as dawn came. He didn't own a car himself, and he never has since. She sat on the bed, and she told him that she would try to get sleep, but that sometimes they shook her head about. There came no indication of who they were. John asked her once more if there was someone he could call. To this, she responded that she was not even close to being who she thought she was. She said, you make me laugh. And then she threw her head back and did so. And that laugh was what first made my grandfather scared to be in the house with her. The voice that came out of her throat was first her own, but then suddenly seemed to belong to a small child, and then a different woman entirely. He compared it to an audio montage made by a sound editor. He stared at her, waiting for her to say something more, but she closed her eyes and laid down on the bed and sounded her bells again. He went back upstairs, but he couldn't go to sleep after that. After this odd physical malady and having this stranger on the floor below him, it wasn't going to happen. He sat in a chair and smoked and watched the snowfall outside, wondering what would happen if it accumulated so much that the ambulance couldn't come. Two hours passed, and his eyes were getting heavier and heavier when he heard the shaking of those finger bells again, and it didn't sound like they were coming from the guest room. They seemed closer. The sound came just once. 
John got up and opened his bedroom door very slowly and went out into the hall. He thought the sound had come from as close as the bottom of the staircase, but the woman wasn't there. He stood in that same spot for a full hour waiting, but for all he knew, the stranger was asleep again. He went down the stairs as soon as the sky began to lighten. He called the hospital from the kitchen, and the ambulance was promised in about twenty minutes. It would have been ten, but the snow was really falling now. The wind was picking up. John waited on the back porch, closing the door behind him, not wanting to even check on the woman. When the ambulance arrived, proceeding very carefully up the drive, John went out and told the driver, a man named Patrick Edelston, that no gurney was needed. The woman could walk under her own power, and she just needed an evaluation. The two men went into the house, and John knocked on the guest room door. When there was no answer, he opened it. The woman was gone. They both checked the whole house, though there was nowhere for her to have gone. Edelston trotted back to the ambulance to call back in. John went through the kitchen and stepped out onto the back lawn, which was under four inches of snow now. He immediately saw footprints leading across the yard toward the woods. He began to follow them, moving as fast as he could, though the wind and the snow in his face and the slippery footing made it difficult. Once or twice as he went, he had to stop just to lower his head and peer closer to the ground, because the darkness wasn't retreating very quickly. He spotted the stranger a few hundred yards into the woods near the bank of a small stream. As soon as John saw her moving away from him, he shouted, and she stopped and turned. She waited for him to approach. She smiled and took a step towards him. John remembered that the wind had blown her hair into her mouth, and it had caught there, so it appeared almost as if she were eating it. He had to lean in to hear what she said to him, which was just a single sentence. I'll make you remember me and all that I can do. She said, and she suddenly raised her left arm and swung it toward him in a swooping arc. He felt her hand connect with his right cheek hard, and then, unfathomably, he swore as an old man that he had felt her fingers puncture his cheek entirely, tearing right through the flesh, and he could feel her fingertips touch his teeth and those cold little bells dinging against his face in the open wound. For one second of mortal shock and panic, he stood there as she laughed and pushed her fingers deeper through his cheek, seeming to feel for his tongue. He flinched back instinctively, and her hand withdrew, and he felt his cheek become whole again in an instant. There was no blood, no nothing. It had never really happened. The woman turned and began to run through the snow, and this time John did not follow her. He sank to his knees in a panic, feeling his face. There was nothing wrong with it. The woman disappeared into the midst, and a minute later Edelston was behind him, helping him to his feet. It took an hour or so for my grandfather to tell me that part of the story, sitting there on the back porch. He filled his pipe again and sighed heavily. He'd never told this to anyone, not even Edelston, on that morning that it all happened. He wondered if he should stop. I didn't pressure him, and eventually he went on. There was a real search for the woman, but it couldn't amount to much as 16 inches of snow eventually fell that day and the area was stifled. She had vanished. That began the time when my grandfather would see her in his dreams. These were the worst nightmares he'd ever had, but eventually they did begin to fade. One morning, almost a year after his encounter with the woman, he woke up inexplicably cold and almost went into a state of panic. Before he realized it was cold, not as some sort of premonition that she had returned, but because he'd left a window open. He couldn't forget that feeling of having been freezing inside his skin, as if his organs had suddenly been coated in ice. More than once, his dreams took the form of reliving his first hour with the woman, 
from the moment he'd seen her standing on the border between the road and his drive. But in the dream, when she said she'd eaten the eye of a farmer in Lancaster and opened her mouth to show him, he woke up stifling a scream, because now it was obvious that she truly had. There were other waking moments when my grandfather was haunted. Once he was on a train to Manhattan to visit his brother, and the train had to stop in New Jersey with an engine problem a little after dark. It was sitting on the tracks in the middle of Levittown, and he looked out the window and he saw a woman sitting on a bench underneath a streetlight more than a hundred yards away. He couldn't make out her face, but for some reason he was immediately convinced that it was her. She never moved until the train pulled away again ten minutes later. He couldn't say what it was that made him think it was her. He just felt it with every fiber of his being. Shortly after that trip, he fell into a depression that had lasted almost three years and whose cause he could never quite pinpoint. In 1958, seven years after the night of that snowstorm in Cumberland, John was contacted by the Ohio State Police about a murder case that was being investigated in Youngstown. By that time, he was considered an expert in abnormal psychology and was occasionally called upon to testify in court as such. Now, a detective who knew of his work wanted to send him a stack of paperwork that represented evidence collected so far in the killing of Father Onar Corvett, a 40-year-old Catholic priest. Half the evidence consisted of photographs of the crime scene. Because the material was too sensitive to send through the mail, the detective asked if he could drive out and meet John at a hotel near the western Maryland border where John was at a convention of clinicians. He agreed, and over coffee, the detective, Terence Bruner, gave him the materials and told him more about the case. Back at his hotel room in the small hours of the night, my grandfather first read Father Corvett's diary, which hadn't been kept regularly, but twice mentioned his attempts to help a homeless woman who had recently appeared in Youngstown. She was mute, he believed, and traumatized, but docile and apparently harmless. For some reason, the priest never referred to her by name, only as the Snake Lady. It had taken Bruner quite some time to determine the origin of this nickname, which had only been revealed in a single letter Corvid had written to his sister. The first time he'd seen the homeless woman, she'd been standing under a tree on church grounds. He'd spoken to her briefly, then gone back inside the church. When he came back out an hour later and walked to his car, he noticed that she was gone, but that something was lying under the same tree in the grass. Closer investigation revealed it to be a long, thick, grayish-brown snake, a dead one, that looked quite exotic and put a real fright into Corvid. He drove the carcass directly to animal control, which, with the help of a nearby university, later identified it as a puff adder, considered Africa's deadliest snake, one that should not exist outside of it. There wasn't much more detail than that about the snake lady. The striking thing about the diary was Father Corvett's writing about his travels to various libraries to the area, travels which got more extensive and expansive as they went on. His reasons for them were maddeningly vague, and so Detective Bruner had looked into the priest's materials, checkout records, at scholarly libraries and theological seminaries. He was able to detect a pattern. The man kept checking books out farther and farther away from his home on subjects ranging from drug addiction and schizophrenia to witchcraft. One weekend, Corvett came to a seminary in Philadelphia from which he withdrew books about ancient religious beliefs centered around the Middle East. At one point, he requested photocopies of two essays from the late 1900s describing the obscure belief among some Babylonian tribes that the souls of the dead could congregate inside a single living human body for the purpose of resurrecting it. 
The timeline of his research coincided with the homeless woman's arrival in town, according to various people who had briefly seen Corbett in conversation with her. From there, John started going through the stack of crime scene photographs. The scene was the church where Father Corbett conducted his services. In the wide shot of the interior, taken from the back of the church, it seemed totally empty, though looking hard, one could see that all the way in the first row of pews a man was sitting, facing forward. The other photos showed this was Father Corbett, who had been killed with two knife wounds to the heart, only slightly slumped over, as if he'd been sitting on the pew turned partially sideways, perhaps speaking to someone sitting beside him. He'd simply never fallen over. There were, my grandfather said, more than 150 photographs of him in this position. Looking more closely at the little details of each, he saw writing on the seat of the pew about 24 inches away from Corbett's left hand, small writing that had been done in pencil, almost looking like a child had been bored. The police knew of the writing but did not know its origin. The style of the letters, which spelled out completely nonsensical, unconnected words, made my grandfather set the photos aside and light his pipe to calm himself. He called Terence Bernard to see if maybe he had not yet left the area. He hadn't. My grandfather left his hotel in order to walk the 12 blocks across downtown Grantsville to the police station where Bruner was meeting with a colleague. He needed to talk to the man in person because he recognized the letters the killer had printed on that pew from some faint writing his night visitor had made on the windowsill of his guest room in 1951. She'd taken a pen off a table and done it, making just three or four words out of nothing and putting odd-looking accents over the H and Vs. The streets were very quiet, my grandfather was walking across the little town square when everything around him started to lose its color all at once, the color bleeding out of every tree and street sign and car parked against the curb, and he began to feel sick to his stomach. He was seized with a heavy, dry cough, and he made his way to the closest bench, sat down, and put his head between his knees to settle down. A profound sense of dread then came over him. He sensed that something truly awful was about to happen to him, and he had just raised his head to look up and around to see if perhaps there was someone else in the street or a public place he could run toward to feel safe, when suddenly his head was flung back, then forward again, as if an unseen hand had grabbed it, forward and back, forward and back, until his neck was almost snapping, his head whipping up and down. He tried to scream, but he couldn't. He'd lost all control of his body, which was almost flying off the park bench with the force of this bizarre seizure. It lasted only about five seconds, and then, dizzy and in great pain, he fell off the bench and onto the grass. No one saw his agonies. After a minute, he stood up, trying to regain his balance. Somehow he knew, he told me, that as long as he didn't take another single step toward the police station to tell them what he knew, he'd be all right. He returned and began to walk back in the other direction, back from where he came from, and with every step he took, more color came back into the world around him, and the pain in his neck subsided. Soon he began to run, and he was back into the lobby of his hotel in just a couple of minutes. The desk clerk offered to call an ambulance, but my grandfather said no. He told the clerk that if anyone called to be put through to his room, he should tell them that he had taken ill. He made his way upstairs and collapsed on the bed, and he remembered weeping, knowing that he could never tell anyone about the woman, ever. He would send back crime scene evidence without a note, by intending to speak of that woman and perhaps sending the police after her. He felt he had enraged something that was in control of her. He vowed at that moment never to speak of her to anyone for any reason in the hope he would be left alone. 
That night was the longest of his life as he lay there and waited for that invisible hand who maybe returned to strike him, strangle him, kill him. He went to church for the first time in his life two weeks later, and he fully embraced Catholicism that summer. He never stopped. That's where his story of the woman ended. Decades passed, and nothing truly strange ever happened to him again. He wanted to correlate his peace with the events to his acceptance of spirituality, but he wasn't sure about it. He thought perhaps it was more about his refusal to act on his suspicions. He felt something sensed that he wasn't a threat. As he grew older, his memories of the terrible thing began to fade, blessedly, just like any other memories. He told me life was so long, so very long, that the human mind could learn to endure and bury almost anything. This world was populated by people who had lost children in accidents and Holocaust survivors. But when life reached a certain duration, these things slowly, slowly faded. No matter how much they shook our beliefs, time inevitably did its work. And even though your experiences would never allow you to be the same, those slow decades labored in the dark field of the subconscious to overcome them. He dedicated himself to his work and his new family, and he simply never told anyone about what had happened. Until that night, when he was 71, and he told me about it there on his back porch. I was speechless for several minutes. Finally, I asked him if he felt unburdened or just maybe worried that telling the story held some power. He shook his head firmly, said no, he didn't think so. All that had ended almost 40 years ago, the fact that he had never encountered anything of a supernatural nature again, led him to believe that he was safe from such things, and maybe, just maybe, there was an explanation of the events that lay deep within parts of his mind he'd never explored. Still, I told myself on that night that the secret would stay with me, which was only partially to honor him. Some of that vow was due to my own fears of the unknown. The specters of that story had rays of a realm beyond my understanding. It was just better not to speak of it. I felt safer. That story was told to me in the year 1993. In 2012, my grandfather was 90 years old. We'd remained close, though I'd since graduated from college and gone on to have my own career as a doctor. I still visited him every year at Christmas. He continued to live on his own in Solomons, Maryland, a four-hour drive from Cumberland. One day last December, I arrived there to stay for a couple of days, and we exchanged presents and had dinner like always. It was very healthy and sound of mind, the result of very studious and disciplined living. I took him out to a nice restaurant in town the night after Christmas. I had to start driving back to Boston afterward. We got in a car at the restaurant and drove to his house. I remember that he had forgotten to lock his front door, which was not a big deal, as he sometimes just didn't bother. Where we lived was very safe. We went into the house, and he told me to go down into the basement to take a box of toys there back to my niece and nephew. I went down the stairs into the unfinished basement. There was virtually nothing down there but a big table and a chair and boxes and boxes of mementos. When I turned on the light, which hung from a chain... I saw that something had been written on the gray cement wall on the east side of the room. It looked like it had been scrawled in white chalk. I stared at those words at first, not understanding what they meant, because the first few of them were nonsensical scribbling, letters a foot high that didn't make sense. But below that, there was an actual sentence. The words said, Can you hear the bells? question. A feeling of such terror washed over me. I almost lost consciousness right then and there. I heard my grandfather's feet on the stairs above me, and I called out for him to stop. But something about the tone of my voice, so frightened, made him come farther. 
And so he and I both stood and looked at what was written on the wall. His face was stony. I could see where the white chalk had come from. It had been taken from a plastic tub of it. That was one of the presents my grandfather had bought for my niece and nephew. He said to me, It can't be. It can't be. Without saying a word, I guided him back to the staircase and led him upwards, holding his arm tight so he wouldn't fall. We got to the top of the steps and walked quickly to the front door. We hadn't turned on the house lights yet except for the one in the kitchen, and I could feel the darkness pressing in on us terribly. The move to the door seemed to take forever. I didn't look left or right for fear of what I might see. I ushered Grandpa to the car and opened the door for him, and he got in. I slammed the door shut fast, and I trotted around to the driver's side, and I tried to make it so that Grandpa wouldn't notice me quickly glance into the back seat in case something was there. Only when the doors were locked and the engine started did I feel safe. Grandpa asked me where we were going, and I said, I didn't know. He said, maybe she's still here somewhere. And I nodded, and we pulled out of the driveway. It was my intent to start driving us toward Boston, and we would never come back. Never. Uh, I wouldn't let him. Three turns through the neighborhood was a street called Peach Run. The road, just a single lane, very quiet. And my headlights picked out a figure up ahead, a human figure. It was a small woman moving away from us. When the headlights splashed across her back, and flowed past her, and she was caught in that circle of light, she stopped. When she did, I did too, hitting the brakes. I looked for a second at my grandfather in the dark. His eyes were wide, staring through the windshield. The woman turned toward us, and then she began to walk toward the car. I told Grandpa not to move, but he had no intent of doing so. The woman was old, so very old. Her hair was long and dirty. She wore a plain dress that was almost more like a sack. She was wearing old tennis shoes. When she walked, it was with a marked limp. My eyes went to her left hand, and there they were. There were the bells. Except they'd become so old and rusted over the decades that they seemed to be a permanent part of her flesh which was blackened all around them. There must have been a deep infection at one point, untreated, and now her hand and the bells were one mutated object. They made not a sound now. It had been 63 years since my grandfather had heard them in the middle of the night as he sat in his room, frightened of this same woman who had never forgotten him. She looked even older than her years, ancient, as sick as it's possible for a living human to look. But at least she was mortal. She'd aged. And eventually she'd have to die, freed of whatever controlled her, freed of whatever horrible things she had done over a stretch of time so long I can barely conceive of it. Where had she traveled? Who had she killed without anyone ever locking her away somewhere for good? She staggered forward three more steps until we could see every detail of her withered body. She had no expression on her face, only stared blankly like a statue. I heard Grandpa emit a small wheeze as he began to have more difficulty breathing. I took my foot off the brake and hit the gas pedal then, and we swerved around her and sped up, and I took a sudden right turn that led us to the main road. When we got there, I drove us well over the speed limit to the highway, and we were on it in three minutes. I kept on saying, It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And Grandpa said nothing. Nor did he say anything for almost two hours, when we finally pulled into a gas station. I turned off the radio, and he sat with tears in his eyes, gripping the door handle tightly. Finally, he said he was all right, that he was okay, and he was. He died six months ago of viral pneumonia, only eight months after leaving his house that night, which neither of us ever returned to. He moved in with me and my wife and my kids, who were only too happy to have him. We 
We told them there had been a terrible flooding in his house. I let a real estate agent handle every detail of the sale. So my grandfather would never be left alone, I hired a full-time assistant to help him around the house, even though he didn't need it. He accepted the helper without complaint. And how many nights have I spent wondering how long it will take for that woman to die so that there's no chance I'll be walking alone one night and feel her presence and turn and see that she's somehow found her way to Boston, wanting to demonstrate to me that she is not who I think she is. I'm not as mentally strong as my grandfather. I know it. I know my mind would break if she were to touch me, if she were to reach out to me in the dark with a hand that had fused with bells that would never sound again. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed Bells, as written by Soren Narnia and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale, I'd like to remind you that you can hear dozens more of Soren's tales on his podcast, Knife Point Horror, available wherever podcasts can be found. And you can pick up his book on Amazon.com. Just search for The Complete Knife Point Horror, and you'll find it there, full to the brim with a wide variety of sinister stories guaranteed to give you nightmares. Thanks for your support of indie horror and of tonight's featured author. Up next, we've got a second tale of terror for you, also courtesy of Soren Narnia, in which one gentleman recounts the cautionary tale his father told him as a child. But was there more truth to the stories than anyone would like to admit? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Corpse. My name is Oliver Kraft. I'm a patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I'm probably never going to get out of here while I live. Except this. I'm here because of the Grin Man, who most people call Strom Sullivan. Thirty-seven years ago, in 1969, Sullivan was buried in Glenwood Cemetery on Lincoln Road, after he died in the electric chair in Tennessee. His great-grandfather, who he never knew, had set up a trust 
to make sure all the members of the family were buried in Washington, and so the body was brought to D.C. by train. Strom Sullivan was a gambler and an occasionally violent con artist. In 1966, he lost $300 playing stud poker to a man named Hoffman. At the end of the game, they got into a vicious argument, and Hoffman's dog, a Doberman pincher, that had been sitting beside him during the game, attacked Strom Sullivan, going for his leg and sinking his teeth in deep. Two men had to drag the dog off him. That night, Sullivan limped a few blocks to the motel where Hoffman was staying, picked the lock on his room, entered, and decapitated the man as he slept, using an axe with a broken handle he'd found in a junkyard. Then Sullivan merely sat in a folding chair outside the room, with the door wide open, examining the wounds the Doberman had inflicted. He fell asleep in that chair, and in the morning, a maid walked past him into the room. She immediately ran out and shook Sullivan awake, screaming. His eyes opened, and he looked at her contemptuously and told her to quiet down. He said he knew what had happened because he was the one who had done it. He then got up and walked off, headed back toward his slummy apartment. The police came for him about four hours later. He was convicted of first-degree murder and eventually electrocuted, and for years he lay alone, forgotten, and undisturbed in Glenwood Cemetery. But in 1991, an organization called the Project for Fair Detainment completed a long study on electrocution deaths in America in trying to make it an illegal form of capital punishment. One of the strongest parts of their case was the lesson of what had happened to Strom Sullivan when he was put to death. According to eyewitness reports that some had tried to conceal, the procedure had almost burned Sullivan's scalp off and his hands had gone utterly black. The project for fair detainment wanted to exhume his body, take photographs, and perhaps perform an autopsy as part of their evidence to show how horrible electrocution was. They got their wish. So in 1991, Strom Sullivan was exhumed. Three people were present when the coffin was opened at the city morgue, and they got a real shock. The damage to Sullivan's body that they had expected was there, but the body was otherwise almost perfectly preserved after more than 20 years in the ground in the cheapest possible coffin. It was impossible, but true. More disturbing still was the look on Sullivan's face. His eyes were wide open, and the coroner present wrote that his lips were stretched wide, showing teeth locked together in a freakish grin. The coroner described himself thinking that Sullivan was laughing at them and wouldn't ever stop. The body was photographed, and the project for fair detainment got what they wanted. There was no need for an autopsy, because the body was so flawlessly preserved that it was visually obvious what the electric chair had done to him. Sullivan was then reburied in Glenwood Cemetery in the same grave. The coroner had no explanation for why the body was in such perfect condition. He'd seen such a thing once before, but in a zinc coffin in a family crypt with little exposure to the elements. A year went by and word got out about the mysterious condition of the corpse of Strom Sullivan. The medical department of Alouette University in Oregon got very interested in the body, wanting to study it to find out what could cause such a pristine natural preservation. Sullivan had no relatives left, so the university was able to get permission to exhume him once again, as long as the body would be essentially unaltered after their studies and return to the grave within three weeks. Before Sullivan's body was shipped to Oregon, its first stop was the coroner's office in D.C. again, where the coffin was opened for a second time. And sure enough, the body was still preserved, and Sullivan still had that awful grin on his face, his eyes wide open, staring. There was something missing, though. 
Sullivan's left hand, mostly blackened by the grossly miscalculated electric shock that killed him in 1969, was gone from the wrist. Not much was made of it at the time. It was thought that it may have even fallen off when the body was exhumed before. The researchers at Elouette did what they had to do to the body, and two weeks later, it was back in its grave. Again, no definitive answer was found as to why the body seemed so outwardly alive. Over the course of the next few years, a legend grew about Strom Sullivan's corpse and how it refused to really die, and how year after year he lay there waiting for someone to dig him up so he could see another human face and laugh and laugh, happy to be dead and mocking the living. If you grew up in the Brooklyn area of Washington around that time, like I did, there's a chance you may have heard his name mentioned by kids, probably, or around Halloween. A general store on Franklin Street called Elmo's, which closed in 1999, even kept a chair in one corner occupied only by a sign that advertised it as the actual motel chair that Strom Sullivan had been found sitting in after the murder of the man named Hoffman. The proprietor of the store warned people that anyone who sat in that chair would begin to laugh until they screamed, and then that poor soul's face would freeze that way forever. He said this to me many, many times. In 2005, Strom Sullivan was disinterred for the third time. Two students from George Washington University snuck out to Glenwood Cemetery one night in June and dug up the coffin because they'd heard about the legend and wanted to see if it was true that this was a body that mocked death and life equally. They were fairly well-equipped, and after two hours of digging, they were able to lift the coffin out and set it beside the gravestone. Then they opened the newer coffin provided by Alouette University and joined the small group of the unlucky who had laid eyes on the fresh-looking body with its missing left hand, the right one partially blackened but intact. But they didn't get to see the terrible grin on Sullivan's face because his head had been cut off. It was entirely gone. The students left the coffin right where it was and took off into the night, but being a little drunk, they left plenty of evidence behind and were arrested a few days later. This still left the mystery of where Sullivan's head and left hand had gone. It took a month to finally figure it out. The mystery was traced to a part-time caretaker of the cemetery named Oliver Kraft, who's me. Back when I was nine or so, my father came home one night and showed me a photo he had taken at work. It was a semi-focused picture of Strom Sullivan's corpse, more specifically his grinning face. My father was an attendant at the city morgue. He occasionally used that picture to frighten me when I was bad. Look how the grin man is laughing at you, he'd say. He knows if you don't behave, you're all his. One day I got a hold of the picture and buried it in our backyard, but my father had something else to terrify me. A few months after the picture was buried, I was sleeping in my room after being punished and sent there to remain shut inside in it for three days. When I awoke in the dark, sensing someone near me, I saw my father sitting in a chair beside my bed. He told me that a lesson had to be taught about forgetting to put the lid on the trash can when it was set out for the night. He leaned forward and placed an object on my pillow beside my head. It was a blackened, severed hand. The grin man tried to get in here, but I stopped him, my father said. I believed every word, even though I could smell the alcohol in his breath, a smell that always seemed to be there. I had to sleep that night with the grin man's hand on my pillow to remind me of how my father had protected me, even though I had been so clumsy with the trash. I spent that night in and out of consciousness, lying on the very edge of my bed to be as far away as possible from the hand. Occasionally, I woke up to see it still there on my pillow. When I awoke the next morning, the hand was gone. 
From that time on, I knew that the Grin Man was always near. I dreamed about him three or four times a week. I never saw the hand again, but I knew that as long as my father was alive, the Grin Man wouldn't be able to hurt me, and he didn't. But then my father died when I was in one of the hospitals they put me in for killing dogs in the street and some other things. When I got out, I was almost a full adult, but I had no defense against the Grin Man. I was homeless for a while, but one day I saw an ad in the paper. Glenwood Cemetery was looking for a part-time caretaker. I knew the Grin Man was buried there, so I applied and got the job. Night after night, I stood over the Grin Man's grave. Little by little, I could sense him getting stronger. One night, when I knew he was close to getting out, I dug up the grave and sawed off the Grin Man's head and took it. I felt much calmer after that. I did a bad job of reburying the coffin, which made it easy for the students to get into it a year afterward. The paper said that there was one remarkable coincidence about my arrest. The police found me sleeping in a chair on the front porch of the group house I was living in, exactly like a motel maid had once found the Grin Man after he had decapitated the man who cheated him. I swear I didn't plan that, it just happened. For a long time, I wouldn't tell the police where I put the head, but last week I developed an infection in my left index finger. I had to tell the doctors that when I sawed off the grim man's head, my finger had been lodged inside his mouth to hold it steady. The jaw closed all at once, and it bit me hard enough to draw blood, and the grin man was still laughing when it happened. Now my blood had been poisoned by his bite, even though it's been a year and a half since I touched him. They say the infection has nothing to do with that, but I know differently. It's probably how I'll die. They injected me with some kind of painkiller, and when I was weak, I told them I buried the head in the National Arboretum on the edge of the Anacostia River. The Arboretum is spread over 400 acres, so I don't think they'll ever find it. There are so many trees and bushes and flowers there, it's impossible to tell just where I put it. The grin is still there on his face, he never stopped laughing, not for a second. I meant to dig a hole four feet deep for the head, but I panicked and I only made a hole 18 inches deep. I put the head in, facing away from the city, so that no one will ever have to feel the grin man stare again. I feel better about everything now. All I care about is that I'm cremated, not buried. I'm afraid there may still be a way for the grim man to get me if I'm inside the ground. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed Corpse by author Soren Narnia as performed by yours truly. Once again, I'd like to remind you that all of tonight's tales came to us courtesy of the same author, Mr. Narnia. And if you like his particular brand of horror, I encourage you to check out his podcast, Knife Point Horror, available wherever audio programs can be found. And don't forget to pick up the complete Knife Point Horror book on Amazon, which contains all of the tales from his program in one convenient collection. Thanks again for your support of Indie Horror and of tonight's featured author. It means the world to both of us. As for me, I'd like to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. 
If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs>
inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.